Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. By the way, if you missed out on the first hour, I was visiting with Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos. I would encourage you to uh, check out the uh, podcast. You've got a couple of different ways to do it. Go to lovingliberty.net, and you will find the podcast, uh, lots of podcasts, actually, archived for all of our shows uh, right there on SoundCloud. Um, you can also uh, check out the Loving Liberty Facebook page. and um, Anyway, it's out there. And it's worth listening to. And I understand that uh, not everybody has the opportunity to be sitting around the speakers as uh, as this airs live. So, hey, whatever we can do to accommodate you, we're happy to do it. All right. Where to begin? I want to start with an article. This is one of the guys who I was hanging out with this last weekend at uh, FeeCon in Atlanta. Justin Spears is an educator in Indiana, and he writes a lot about uh, education and he is uh, just a, a very staunch advocate for freedom. He's a great guy, too. It was really a pleasure to get to meet him. And I, and I come to find out, you know, he is, uh, he's actually a, a close friend and acquaintance of several other people whom I highly respect. Which, uh, you know, either indicates what? Well, you must live in an echo chamber. No, it just, it just shows me that the world is a smaller place than we think. And I'm, just so, I'm so grateful for, for the people, the influencers who I get to bump into. I'm positive. I benefit more from from that uh, friendship than than they do from knowing me. But uh, I want to get the word out, too. I'm going to share with you an article here from Justin Spears. This was published on the 10th Amendment Center. Ready for this title? Want civic literacy? Quit focusing on D.C. Does that make sense? Here's how he puts it. He says, if we truly want to engage young people in the political process... We need to stop incessantly talking about Washington, D.C. and focus on issues closer to home. Now, Justin's been teaching U.S. government in the state of Indiana for four years now. He says, the first half of my teaching career I spent teaching business, but social studies disciplines are my passion. When I tell people I teach government, he says, I get a variety of responses. The predominant reaction usually involves people ranting about the current generation's abysmal understanding of civics. Now, he says, you've probably seen the typical man-on-the-street interviews with these people. They have no foundational basis for what they believe or why it's right or, in most cases, wrong. And he says, I see it on a daily basis. I ask probing questions as I I begin the class, such as, what is the Bill of Rights? How many branches of government are there? How many senators does each state have? Many of these questions get met with blank stares or wild guesses. But he says, don't just take my word for it. The 2019 survey of civic literacy conducted by the American Bar Association also reveals this truth. The survey of a thousand U.S. citizens gives us a glimpse at some of the shortcomings. For example, one out of every 10 people believes the Declaration of Independence freed the slaves. Wow. I know I'm only saying, well, because there's a time maybe I would have believed that as well. While the uh, overall numbers were somewhat encouraging, he says there are several responses that highlight the gap that exists in truly understanding how our government should and does function. So what do we do? 
Justin Spears says there are a variety of opinions on how we should try to improve our civic literacy. For instance, in the state of Indiana, the General Assembly has proposed introducing a civics test to seniors. In fact, it would be the same test issued to new citizens of the country. And while that's a noble gesture, it completely misses the mark. Former Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill once famously quipped, All politics is local. What did the former representative from Massachusetts mean with this phrase? As he faced a challenge for his seat, he used this logic in appealing to the voters at the local level by introducing a $1 billion spending bill on infrastructure. Now, of course, to those who follow politics, this kind of pork barrel spending is what drives people crazy. However, it also drives home the point, if we want to increase civic literacy, we must teach people about local matters. Congressional solutions generally leave constituents frustrated and feeling ostracized. So instead of looking to the federal congressman for relief, people should look to their local representatives for answers. When we spend so much of our time and energy focused on Washington, D.C. and the general government, it can be easy to lose interest. I love what he points out here. He says, in reality, I will never come in contact with those elected there or with the bureaucrats that run the Beltway. I'm much more inclined to be impacted by my county commissioners, town councilmen, school board members, etc. And then he says, these past few years, my students got a firsthand look at this. As the county they live in went through a debate over introducing windmills. They were able to see the billboards and read the op-eds and opinion pieces from local businessmen and politicians on the matter. Students attended open hearings and learned on their own about the pros and cons of wind power. He says, at one point in my class, I used the nullification in one lesson provided by the 10th Amendment Center. It's always encouraging to see the students engage with the lesson. And I routinely get students that comment on how they had no idea that the states could have a say or a say so rather in public policy. Teaching our students the power they have as citizens is vital. We must move on from focusing on the worn out, we the people, and rehashing the mantra that we are a democratic republic. He says we should be discussing how we as citizens can return power back to the state and local levels through applying the principles of the Tenth Amendment. We should be highlighting the power that local leaders have in making policy that impacts us on a regular basis. Now, he says, taking this route will not only increase civic engagement, but it will, in, it will highlight the true intended structure for a future generation of leaders. This will provide them with the best understanding of how federalism was intended to work. It will empower them to act and be involved when they see the power of local and state government and not feel powerless to the machine in D.C. And I will include this article in the links on the show notes page when I post this up to podcast a little bit later on today. This is from Justin Spears, writing for the 10th Amendment Center. Now I'm going to throw in uh, one, one little addendum of my own. And this is just purely uh, for your consideration. You don't have to agree with this. In fact, whether you, ag- you agree or not, I would love to get your, your feedback on it. 801-331-8113. I would also encourage you to consider that there are some things which we ought not be outsourcing to government at the local level, at the state level, or at the federal level. I think one of the most difficult things that I have found to try to communicate to people in general is that there are, there are so many areas 
where government really has no legitimate reason to act within our lives. And I'm going to use the, the, the tired old example of, you know, if your neighbor's lawn is too long. Is that really a matter for government to get involved? Because depending on where you live, that may be the case. People, well, yeah, it drives down my property value and I want to make sure my property values are high, even though they're not, you know, even thinking about selling their home. I so much prefer the approach that tries to solve these problems at the lowest possible level. Maybe we should have a little matrix of some kind that we run things through and we ask, can this problem be solved at the lower level? Is it a problem that fits within government's legitimate role? Now, if the answer is no, this doesn't uh, this isn't something government should be involved with. Then it's on us to come up with solutions. And those solutions uh, sometimes take the form of you have to be a good neighbor. I have a good friend that I went to high school with. He posted a post on Facebook just last week, uh, showed a picture of his neighbor's yard. And man, I'm telling you, the grass was high. Now, there was no local ordinance. And it's not like he could just seek, you know, send out the uh, code enforcers, you know, go get him and make his neighbor cut his lawn. But this friend was actually posing the question, man, my neighbor's lawn is getting really out of control. And he says, should I go ask him if, if I can mow it for him? And there was some mixed, you know, feelings on that. He's he, obviously he didn't want to put the guy on the spot. But at the same time, there were a lot of folks saying, hey, just just go mow it. Just do it. Isn't it strange we have to stop and consider, well, is this going to cause more problem than not? And I think the lesson here isn't that, uh, well, maybe we should outsource this to code enforcement. They can handle it, you know, as a disinterested third party. Yeah, disinterested, disinterested third party that brings threats of force, you know, or or fines backed by force. To me, the lesson that, uh, that stands out is we should be working on our skills as neighbors. And by the way, I'm the worst at this. I regularly take my dog to go get the mail. And we're walking along, and I'll say hi to neighbors and realize for two years I have lived where I live. And I have neighbors two doors away that I don't know their name. I'm ashamed of that. It's not that I want to be up in everybody's business, but... I could be a better neighbor, and I think that's, that's probably where I would start. Improve those neighboring skills to where it's not threatening to go and ask someone, hey, can my boys and I come over and pull some weeds? Just, you know, we're looking for something to do. We'll be back. This is Loving Liberty. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. Brian Hyde at your service and happy to have you joining me, whether it's for the broadcast or the podcast. There's so much good information to share. Great article here by uh, Jarrett Stepman. This is on the Foundation for Economic Education's website, the futility of those bans on plastic bags and straws. Look, I see these articles pop up all the time. Lots of funny memes, too, especially about California. Hey, look, I was eating my dinner at this restaurant. They gave me a plastic straw. You know, and I, I understand. There's concerns. You know, I actually see videos come up every so often. We rescued this penguin and watch as it vomits up several pounds of plastic that it ingested in the ocean. 
So please understand, I'm not uh, denying that there may be some problems with plastics, but environmentally friendly reusable bags really don't create that many benefits. In fact, they can be rather unsanitary in that they'll carry the bacteria from one load of groceries to another load of groceries and uh, can actually make you sick. I want you to hear, though, about the futility of these bans on plastic bags and straws from an economic point of view. Jarrett Stepman says Canada, following precedent set by the European Union, is now poised to join a growing list of places where single-use plastic items have been banned. Though the government hasn't specified which items will be actually outlawed in 2021, according to The Guardian, bottles, plastic bags, and straws are the ones being considered. First they came for the bags, then they came for the straws, but instead of, but perhaps instead of looking for other common products to ban, Jarrett Stepman says we should take a look at what these regulations actually do. Of course, plastic bans aren't just restricted to Canada or Europe. Plastic bag bans have come to California and New York and to a number of cities within the United States. These bans are typically aimed at grocery stores and other businesses that give out the bags to customers to carry out purchased items. Now, the bag bans are billed as a means to reduce waste and pollution by forcing Americans to bring reusable bags to stores. However, it turns out that not only are these bans an inconvenience, they also have questionable positive benefits for the environment, and in some cases may actually be making things worse. A recent study by the University of Sydney economist named uh, University of Sydney economist named Rebecca Taylor in Australia established that bans on plastic shopping bags change behavior. In other words, people used who, uh, namely people, used fewer plastic shopping bags as the resources dried up. However, people did not stop using plastic bags as a whole. Instead of reusing plastic bags as trash can liners, for example, they purchased garbage bags to make up for the lost supply. In areas with the shopping bag bans, there was a huge upsurge in the purchase of four-gallon bags. Now, these bags are typically thicker than the thin plastic shopping bags, and they use more plastic. Taylor says, what I found was that the sales of garbage bags actually skyrocketed after plastic grocery bags were banned. So about 30% of the plastic that was eliminated by the ban comes back in the form of thicker garbage bags, which I'm going to guess would take uh, more time to break down, to decompose. In addition, a plastic bag ban causes a jump in the use of paper bags, creating, according to the study, about 80 million pounds of additional paper bag trash a year. Now, that may seem like a reasonable trade-off. After all, paper bags are biodegradable, right? Yes, but... The process of manufacturing those bags is still quite intensive, and there's evidence that paper bags are actually worse for the environment, according to some studies. Not surprisingly, some big government nannies want to ban or at least curtail the use of paper bags, also for good measure. And as for the environmentally friendly reusable bags, studies have found that they create few green benefits. Worse, they're often highly unsanitary. Plastic bags are, of course, not the only plastic items that cities are trying to do away with. An even less useful crusade, this one against plastic straws, has been gaining steam as well. The straw ban, which started in Seattle and has moved on to other cities, has largely been fueled by an informal survey by a nine-year-old activist and a mistaken notion that the U.S. is causing plastic buildup in the oceans. 
Now, Jarrett Stepman points out, again, the ban is ineffective or useless at best. It ends up being a little more than an inconvenience for those who now have to suffer through soggy, melting paper straws that taste like a used paper towel halfway through a drink. There are certainly worse laws and petty tyrannies to suffer under than bans on plastic bags. Nevertheless, it's ironic that a progressive utopia such as San Francisco is waging war on plastic grocery bans with a total ban looming in the near future, even as the city is literally covered in trash, hypodermic needles, and human waste. Stepman points out our, our zeal to fix first world problems are also coming at the expense of not stopping re-emerging th- third world problems. That said, Americans live in a wealthy society in which we have the luxury of making economic sacrifices to improve our environment. Local polities are free to eliminate plastic bags and straws or other things as they see fit. However, he says it's telling that so many of these movements are based on little more than environmentalist virtue signaling and create additional hassles rather than effective measures to make our communities cleaner or better. I like his take on it. I don't know what the answer is. Maybe you do. I mean, you know, I, I, I have no problem with what I would refer to as, as good stewardship rather than becoming more green. <laughs> it's not that I don't love the green and, and you know, want things to, to be clean. I like clean water. I like uh, right now the roses in my neighborhood are just blooming everywhere. So probably bad news if you have some allergies going on, but it's, it's gorgeous. It, it's one of the most beautiful times of the year. I'd, I'd much prefer seeing that to, you know, just plastic or asphalt everywhere I go. But it seems like there's more symbolism. I think the word, the the term, the virtue signaling, that's more what is happening here than anything that's actually substantively improving the environment. The cool thing about it is if you leave it to people to come up with voluntarily, not only will they do it for the right reasons, but often it frees them up to innovate and to come up with ways to repurpose plastic or to to address these needs without having to resort to government force. Kind of comes back to what we were talking about in the last segment. Solve those problems at the lowest possible level, or, or better still, make sure that people have the freedom to explore different options and different opportunities of how they would go about solving a particular problem. People will get it right most of the time. It's astonishing what happens when you are allowed to engage in what's known as permissionless innovation. I think uh, Adam Thierer, I'm probably saying his name wrong, but uh, uh, he's he's with the Mercatus Institute with uh, George Mason University. But um, wow. That's some great ideas on permissionless innovation. But here's the problem. When something innovative comes along, you know what the default setting is for most people? Uh, do you get permission for the government from the government to do that? You know, in other words, did you do you have the proper licenses? Do you have the proper prints? Have the proper impact studies been done to determine whether or not this is going to be a net good or a net bad? As if 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 it's not pronounced clean by government, then it can't possibly benefit people. And in my opinion, this is just this is 180 degrees opposite of the way we should view things. People should be free to innovate without permission 
assuming that they're using their own money and their own property. The only time government should ever enter the picture is if someone can show, look, a measurable harm has been done either to a person or to their property. And then government intervenes only for the sake of seeing that justice is done, that someone's held accountable, that uh, a wrong is actually righted. But instead, we've got this mentality. No, no, no. It has to be in charge and multiple studies costing billions of dollars or millions of dollars in years. You want to talk about something standing in the way of progress or or things that are actually good? It's bureaucracy. And yet uh, a lot of folks hold to the notion that if it weren't for that bureaucracy, everything would be out of control. How do you break a habit like that? Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, thanks so much for joining us for Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. My number is 801-331-8113. If you'd like to join the conversation, feel free to call 801-331-8113. Going to keep on kind of an economic kick here. Not that I want to get deep into, you know, uh, economic theory, but just another great article. This one I saw last week. I've been waiting a couple of days to share it, but... It's why the amorality of markets is preferable to the immorality of coercion. This is from Gary Gallus, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education. And it's a wonderful explanation of why the market is a mechanism. It's neither wise nor moral, but at least people voluntarily and freely get to choose their course of action or how they will allocate their resources. You bring coercion into the uh, equation and, you know, you may be striving for, I want a good society. I want a society of order. I want a righteous society. But you don't get righteous people when coercion is involved. All you get are submissive little robots. You want to be around good, virtuous people? You've got to be around people who are allowed to freely choose whether they will be good and virtuous. That means that they have to have the ability to choose not to be good and virtuous. Let's talk about this in terms of markets, though. Gary Gallus says, liberty and voluntary relationships evoke the best in individuals and therefore society. That makes it painful to see willing arrangements blamed for virtually everything someone can think to object to in favor of coercion of some by others via government for some unattainable utopian vision. But why are unattainable utopian visions more attractive to so many more people than liberty, which can achieve the best society that is actually attainable? Leonard Reed considered this issue carefully and offered useful insight in his free market disciplines. On the 50th anniversary of Let Freedom Reign, in which it appeared, Gary Gallus says this is worth reconsidering. Reed showed that liberty's failure to gain more adherence than utopian statism can be in part traced to the fact that it's the ends envisioned rather than the means involved that often motivate people. Okay, that makes sense. Unlike utopian visions which gloss over grubby real-world problems of not just implementation but internal contradictions, freedom and a moral servant 
cannot be proven to have no objectionable results to anyone. And that can saddle liberty with an inspirational deficit. However, he says, attributing disliked results to markets misplaces blame, therefore restricting voluntary arrangements beyond preventing the use of force and fraud cannot solve the real problems. However, such efforts can hobble the market's ability to coordinate people's mutually beneficial, productive efforts, causing a great deal of harm through misguided attempts to accomplish good. Listen to what Leonard Reed had to say on the matter. Reed said the free market is the only mechanism that can sensibly, logically, intelligently discipline production and consumption. For it is only when the market is free that economic calculation is possible. Free pricing is the key. But it is necessary to recognize the limitations of the free market. The market is a mechanism, and thus it is wholly lacking in moral and spiritual suasion. It embodies no coercive force whatsoever. Given a society of freely choosing individuals, the market is that which exists as a consequence. It's a mechanism that is otherwise non-definitive. It is the procession of economic events that occur when authoritarianism is absent. In a word, the free market is individual desire speaking in exchange terms. When the desires of people are depraved, a free market will accommodate that depravity. And it will accommodate excellence, excellence rather, with equal alacrity. It is servant alike to good and evil. It is because the free market serves evil as well as good that many people think they can rid society of evil by slaying this faithful, amoral servant. This is comparable to breaking the mirror so we won't have to see the reflection of what we really are. The market is but a response to a mirror of our desires. So instead of cursing evil, Leonard Reed says, stay out of the market for it. The evil will cease to the extent, to the extent we cease patronizing it. Trying to rid ourselves of trash by running to government for morality laws is like trying to minimize the effects of inflation by wage, price, and other controls. Both destroy the market. That is the reflection of ourselves. Attempts not to see ourselves as we are. To slay this faithful, amoral servant is to blindfold, deceive, and hoodwink ourselves. Denying the market is to erase the best point of reference man can have. And Reed goes on to say, The market is a mechanism and neither wise nor moral. The market is an obstacle course. Before I can pursue my bent or aptitude or obsession, I must gain an adequate voluntary approval or assent. My own aspirations, regardless of how determined or lofty or depraved, do not control the verdict. What these others will put up in willing exchange for my offering spells my success or failure, allows me to pursue my bent or not. Eventually, in a free society, the junk goes to the junk heap and achievements are rewarded. He says, I believe that anyone should follow his star, but let him do so with his own resources or with such resources as others may voluntarily supply. This is to say that I believe in the market, a tough disciplinary mechanism. And Reed concludes by saying an individual in the free market considers how much of his own property he's willing to put on the line. The free market gives short shrift to projects that are at or near the bottom of individual preferences. End quote. That's a pretty brilliant explanation, or at least enunciation of, 
of how the free market operates. And Gary Gallus points out that Reed saw that defenders of liberty have to face the fact that markets enable people to do whatever they wish better. In other words, that it is an amoral servant. It can't be relied upon to produce only good and inspirational things. But when they better enable doing ill, they do so only by reflecting what some people desire. If we reformed ourselves, market would do no such harm. And Leonard Reed had great faith such improvements were possible. By contrast, coercively reforming us doesn't eliminate the causes of such harm and does little to actually stop it, but it does throw away the amoral servant of the greater good that can be accomplished through any other means. Leonard Reed recognized that liberty, the voluntary arrangements that are created when rights to ourselves and our production are protected, provides the means of achieving what's actually achievable in advancing society. As we develop ourselves, we each have more to offer others. That, plus what freedom has historically accomplished beyond anyone's ability to envision, extended to further as yet unknowable possibilities, were at the heart of his inspirational vision. And Gary Gallus says to follow in Leonard Reed's path toward increasing liberty, we too must develop our ability to see the unseen and often unimagined good that can only be accomplished by freeing people's ability to peacefully create and innovate. We must also be able to see the inherent failings of coercion. With such binocular vision, we can still recognize liberty as far more inspirational than any statist pipe dream. It's very curious to me the reference to, uh, you know, the, the market will show back a mirror of what people want or what people are willing to accept. I think about this, and this is probably the only time I'm going to mention it. Uh, mention it. It's, a, it's a new program. I believe it's on HBO. I can't remember exactly. It's, it's on one of the you know, premium subscription services, and it's a show called Euphoria. And you want to talk about pushing the limits. I mean, it's, uh, it, it depicts lots and lots of teen drug use and nudity and sexual assault. And, you know, of course, it's, it's just trying to show us the gritty reality. But it's also trying to push the limits of what people are willing to accept as entertainment. I read a review that somebody had written the other day saying even Hollywood executives were shocked. Now, look, I don't want to sound like a prude here, but what exactly would it take to shock a Hollywood executive? I mean, come on, the people who looked the other way while Harvey Weinstein was was betting would-be starlets, you know, as a promise to advance their careers. The people who were constantly looking to push new and and more graphic, you know, uh, imagery in every movie they create. I know I'm painting with a broad brush here, but I, I think you get my point. Hollywood should be pretty hard to shock at this point. But apparently this new show has done it. In fact, it was so shocking that at least one of the actors who was was named uh, was cast in the show ended up walking off the show saying, I, I just can't do this. I'm not saying that actors and actresses are uh, uh, morally flexible people, but, uh, well, yeah, actually, I am saying that. Typically, to get work in Hollywood, you got to be willing to sell your soul in a buyer's market. How bad would it have to be for an actor on a premium network to say, I, I just can't do this? I mean, I applaud their exercise of conscience, but 
What an indication of how, how we're slipping just a little bit lower. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, 801-331-8113. Just in case the urge hits. So I'm, I'm sure you have probably heard people talk about the deep state. And I don't know if just saying those words makes your eyes immediately glaze over. Uh-oh, no. Somebody's going off into tinfoil hat territory. Um, heaven knows I, I used to feel that way as well. But um I think it's a subject worth understanding. And, I, and by that, I don't mean spending every moment of your life chasing and checking behind every rock or under every rock and behind every bush to see if there is you know, some, some agent of the deep state spying on you. I love the explanation that Doug Casey gives. And I noticed LouRockwell.com yesterday, or I guess it was over the weekend maybe, had published an essay by Doug Casey, The Deep State is the Source of Our Economic Problems. Now, I remember this being published a couple of years ago, and it impressed me because I thought Doug Casey gave one of the more concise explanations of who and what the deep state is and what it does. But he starts by talking about economic bad times. He says, I'm here to tell you that the inevitable became reality back in 2008. And he says, we've had an interlude over the last few years tri- financed by trillions of new currency units. But he says, the economic clock on the wall is reading the same time as it was in 2007. And the black horsemen of your worst financial nightmares are about to crash again through the doors and end the party. But he says, this time they won't be riding children's ponies, but armored percherons. To refresh your memory, he says, let me decount, let me recount rather what a depression is. The best general definition is a period of time when most people's standard of living drops significantly. By that definition, the Greater Depression started in 2008, although some historians may say it began in 1971 when real wages started falling. It's also a period of time when distortions and misallocations of capital are liquidated and when the business cycle, which is caused exclusively by currency debasement known as inflation, climaxes. That results in high unemployment, business failures, uncompleted construction, bond defaults, stock market crashes, and the like. Now, he says, fortunately for those who benefit from the status quo and members of something called the deep state, the trillions of new currency units delayed the liquidation, but they also ensured that it will now happen on a much grander scale. He says the deep state is an extremely powerful network that controls nearly everything around you. Now, you won't read about it in the news because it controls the news. Politicians won't talk about it publicly. That would be like a mobster discussing murder and robbery on the six o'clock news. You could say the deep state is hidden, but it's only hidden in plain sight. And here's the kicker. The deep state is the source of every negative thing that's happening right now. To survive the coming rough times, it's essential that you know what it's all about. Now, what causes economic problems? With the exception of natural events like fires, floods, and earthquakes, they're all caused directly and indirectly by the state through its wars, taxes, regulations, and inflation. 
And Doug Casey says, yes, I know this is an oversimplification that human nature is really at fault and the institutions of the state. The institution of the state is only a mass dramatization of the psychological aberrations and demons that lie within us all. But he says, we don't have time to go all the way down the rabbit hole. So let's talk about just the proximate rather than the ultimate causes of the greater depression. And he says, here, I want to talk about the nature of the state in general and then something called the deep state in particular. He says a key takeaway, and I emphasize that because I expect it to otherwise bounce off the programmed psyches of most people, is that the very idea of the state itself is poisonous, evil, and intrinsically destructive. But like so many bad ideas, people have come to assume it's part of the cosmic firmament when it's really just a monstrous scam. It's a fraud, like your belief that you have a right to free speech because of the First Amendment or a right to be armed because of the Second Amendment. No, you don't. The Constitution is just an arbitrary piece of paper, entirely apart from the fact the whole thing is now just a dead letter. You have a right to free speech and to be armed because they are necessary parts of being a free person, not because of what a political document says. Even though the essence of the state is coercion, people have been taught to love and respect it. People think of the state in the quaint light of a grade school civics book. They think it has something to do with we the people electing a Jimmy Stewart character to represent them. That ideal has always been a pernicious fiction because it ideals, sanitizes, and legitimizes an intrinsically evil and destructive institution, which is based on force. As Chairman Mao once said, political power comes out of the barrel of a gun. But things have gone far beyond that. We're now in the deep state. The concept of the deep state originated in Turkey, which is appropriate since it's heir to the totally corrupt Byzantine and Ottoman empires. And in the best Byzantine manner, the deep state has insinuated itself throughout the fabric of what once was America. Its tendrils reach from Washington down to every part of civil society. Like a metastasized cancer, it can no longer longer easily be eradicated. Doug Casey says, I used to joke there's nothing wrong with Washington that 10 megatons on the Capitol couldn't cure. But I don't say that anymore, partially because it's too dangerous, but mainly because it's now untrue. What's needed now is uh, 10 megatons on the Capitol and four more bursts in a quadrant 10 miles out. In many ways, Washington models itself after another city with a deep state ancient with a deep state of that being ancient Rome. Here's how a Victorian free thinker, Winwood Reed, accurately described it. Quote, Rome lived upon its principle till ruin stared it in the face. Industry is the only true source of wealth and there was no industry in Rome. By day, the Ostia Road was crowded with carts and muleteers carrying to the great city the silks and spices of the East, the marble of Asia Minor, the timber of the Atlas, the grain of Africa and Egypt. And the carts brought out nothing but loads of dung. That was their return cargo. End quote. The deep state controls the political and economic essence of the U.S., This is much more than observing that there's no real difference between the left and right wings of the Demopublican Party. It's well known by anyone with any sense, that is by anybody except the average voter, that although the Republicans say they believe in economic freedom, but don't, they definitely don't believe in social freedom. And the Democrats say they believe in social freedom, but don't, and they sure don't believe in economic freedom. So who is part of the deep state? Well, he says the deep state is a real but informal structure that has arisen to not just profit from, but to control the state. The deep state has a life of its own, like the government itself. 
It's composed of top echelon employees of a dozen praetorian agencies like the FBI, CIA, and NSA, top generals, admirals, and military operatives, long-term congressmen and senators, and directors of important regulatory agencies. But the deep state is much broader than just the government. It also includes the heads of major corporations, all of whom are heavily involved in selling to the state and enabling them. It absolutely includes Silicon Valley, although these guys at least have a sense of humor, as evidenced by their don't be evil motto. It also includes all the top people in the Fed, the heads of all major banks, brokers and insurers, add the presidents and professors at top universities who act as deep state recruiting centers. All the top media figures, of course, and many regulars at things like Bohemian Grove and the Council on Foreign Relations. They epitomize the status quo held together by money, power and propaganda. Altogether, he says, I'd guess these people number about a thousand or so. You might analogize the structure of the deep state with a huge pack of dogs. The people I've just described are the top dogs. But there are hundreds of thousands more who aren't at the nexus, but who directly depend on them, have considerable clout and support the deep state because it supports them. This includes many of the wealthy especially those who got that way thanks to their state connections. The 1.5 million people who have top-secret clearances, that's a shocking but accurate number, plus top players in organized crime, especially the illegal drug business, little of which could exist without the state. Plus mid-level types in the police and military, corporations, and other non-governmental organizations. These are what you call the running dogs. Beyond that are scores and scores of millions who depend on things remaining the way they are, like 50-plus percent of Americans who are net recipients of benefits from the state, like 60 million on Social Security, 66 million on Medicaid, the 50 million on food stamps, and many millions on hundreds of other programs, the 23 million government employees and their families. In fact, let's just include the many millions of average Joes and Janes just getting by. You might call this level of people, the vast majority of the population, whipped dogs. They both love and fear their master. They'll do as they're told, and they'll roll over on their backs and wet themselves if confronted by a top or running dog who feels they're out of line. These are the three types of dogs that make up the vast majority of the U.S. population. Now, he points out the deep state is destructive, but it's great for the people in it. And like any living organism, its prime directive is survive. But it's a parasite that promotes the ridiculous notion that everybody can live at the expense of society. How's that for an interesting uh, description of what others would just say? Ah, it's just a conspiracy theory. Boy, that sure has a ring of truth, though. Credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.